for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. Thank you, Lord. Are we doing good? It's good to see you. Thank you for being here this morning. You know, um, there's something that I have uh, been leaning on a lot lately, and it's this, this revelation that no matter how difficult, painful, or frustrating a situation may be, we always have a reason to celebrate because Jesus is still on his throne. Man, he still sees me. He still loves me. He still leads me. And, and I can dance. If that's the only thing going my way, I can, still, I can still dance and sing and shout and smile because he is for me and he is with me. And what a great God we serve. Um, you know, throughout this last week, I've been uh, meditating on this, this one phrase that's just been in my spirit repeatedly. It's a phrase out of uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And um, I want to introduce this principle to you. Now, uh, I wrote a book uh, several years ago called Scary God, and I still stand behind the idea that that's the greatest title for a book ever written. Uh, and, I, and the interesting thing for me is it's like we, we can't, we struggle, even still, after 80,000 words of writing on the topic, people still struggle to separate the uh, uh, the, the fear of the Lord from this, this idea of, of cruelty. It's like the, the idea that God is scary seems to carry with it the implication that God is cruel, and that's not true. And so um, I've been thinking recently about, about this idea, that God has, has been so good to us um, that uh, I've been sort of stuck on, on this one verse in, in Romans eleven twenty two. It says this, it says, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. I want to I take just a second to talk about just that first phrase. Therefore, consider. That word consider, it's an exclamatory verb. It's like, it's like a command. It's like, behold, or, or look, the, the goodness and severity of God. And, and it's interesting for me because those two, they seem like they're, they're contrary to each other. Like they're contradictory. How can God be both good and severe? The word for, for severity, it means like sharpness or, or rigidness. It, it, it means that he's not soft. And... Uh, and so for Paul to write to the Romans and, and, and say, you have to make sure that you behold. You have to make sure that you consider. You have to make sure that you're continually looking and meditating on this idea that God is not just good, he's also severe. And he's not just severe, he's also good. He's saying you have to keep before you continually that the God you serve is both good and severe. And in fact, I would take it to another level and say that we cannot adequately comprehend the goodness of God without first understanding his severity. But I'll get into that in just a minute. It says, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. What's that next word? 
That is the most important word in the English language. I have it highlighted and underlined and circled in my Bible. If you continue. I, I, let me, instead of just telling you my opinions, R.C. Sproul once said this. He said, people aren't afraid of the wrath of God anymore because preachers are out there telling people that God loves them unconditionally. Somehow I didn't expect anyone to shout amen when I said that. This isn't, my, this isn't my preaching. Someone else said this. So email him. <laughs> people, aren't afraid. people aren't afraid of the wrath of God anymore. People aren't afraid of the wrath of God anymore. I was having a conversation with my wife recently, and I said, you know what America needs? Less preachers. Like it needs to, it needs to cost something for people to preach again. It's so easy you just get an iPhone and start filming yourself saying whatever you think is fun to say. It's like now 100,000 followers, 10 million you know, views later, suddenly you've shaped the minds, the doctrines, the theologies of a whole bunch of people that can't tell the difference between someone who has in humility contended with the word of God and someone who's just talking crap on, a, on their iPhone. Like, you should... If you're going to be mature in the faith, you're going to have to discern the difference between someone who's just talking, someone who's sharing ideas, and someone who's communicating the heart of God. And we should expect that if anyone seeks to teach the word of God, they do so with fear and trembling. And if they don't, they don't deserve even 30 seconds of your time. And so it's my dream that some cultural shift would happen to where uh, all the people who are preaching because it's convenient would just give up. They can go stand in food lines. I'm telling you, I, I can't begin to tell you how tired I am of people who've not paid any price to, to teach the word, trying to teach the word. Like, we have... Uh, we as the church have to do better at gatekeeping the integrity of this institution. It's like anybody anywhere can start a ministry on TikTok or YouTube. Anybody anywhere can plant a church in their basement. Anybody anywhere can stand on a street corner and just start saying whatever their opinions are about God. And the crazy thing is we have this, you know, networking device that can help us find people gullible enough to believe us. Oh, that's a dangerous thing. Now you're not just some, you know, crazy person sharing your crazy ideas to the people around you, people who know you too well to believe you because they're close enough to see the garbage, you know, decisions that you're making. It's like now you're finding people who don't know how terrible a person you are privately and, uh, and they think, well, this sounds pretty good. You know, that they have itching ears is the way that the Bible says it, you know. And, and so your, your new ideas, they meet itching ears that are just looking for some reason to discredit the inconvenient truths of God's eternal word. And they find it in you. Anyway, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming to the altar fellowship. I don't know. I don't know how we got so serious so fast. We are trying to consider today 
the kindness and severity or the goodness and the severity of God. But there's the, the word. That's where we started um, on that word if. Uh, you, uh, like R.C. Sproul said, people aren't afraid of the wrath of God anymore. That's a problem. And why is it that people aren't afraid of the wrath of God anymore? Because preachers are out there telling people that God loves them unconditionally. Can I tell you a hard truth? God's word is full of conditions. There's, there's one in Romans eleven twenty two. If, that's a conditional word. If you continue in his goodness. Like, we have to understand that like God may love you just the way you are, but the life you've been living is unacceptable to him. He's going to crush your sin. And the day that he's going to crush your sin is coming quickly. And if you're still holding on to it, when that day comes, you're going to be crushed along with it. So, for years now, for more than 15 years, I've given my life to pleading with people, begging people, inviting people to let go of their sin and cling fully to Christ. Because he alone is our security. And so we have to pay a lot of attention when we read this word, if. Consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, here's my thesis for the day. I believe that you cannot know the goodness of God without first knowing his severity. And, and here's why. Um, it is into the context of how deserving we are of the wrath of God. It is into the context of the fallenness of man that the gospel finds its place. My son asked me today if I could sum up the entire Bible in one word. It turns out his middle school Bible teacher has been doing this all year. And, uh, and he asked me, you know, if you could sum up the Bible, Dad, in one word, what would that word be? And I thought for a minute and said, redemption. And, uh, and he said, that's the right answer. That's what our Bible teacher says, too. And I was like, whew. You know, I thank God Mr. Cash was going to come from my throat if I got that one wrong. Um, it, but here's the thing about redemption. It's like, if, if you can't acknowledge that you have something you need to be redeemed from, the message of redemption is not good news to you. If you're not in danger of the wrath of God, then the mercy of God instead of that wrath is, is irrelevant to you. And so we have to understand that we, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to understand that the wages of our sin is death so that then we can appreciate that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let's talk first about severity. I like it. This is, I'm excited about this. Okay, let's talk first about severity. Let, let me go to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 28 of Hebrews 10. Come on. 
So Hebrews 10, starting in verse 28, it says this, anyone who has rejected Moses' law, now understand the author of Hebrews is writing to uh, Jews, to to Messianic Jews in in his area. And, And so he's talking to them about the law of Moses. This has been the governing principle of their lives and their parents and their grandparents for generations and generations. So he says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be brought, uh, will be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? I want to make sure that that we understand precisely what it is we are guilty of. It is it is this that we have trampled the Son of God underfoot. We have counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and we've insulted the spirit of grace. This is, this is the, the author of Hebrews writing to these people saying, listen, if you thought it was bad before, if you thought that you were in trouble because you forgot to make a sacrifice for that sin that you committed last spring, it's like, oh no, things are way worse now. You have violated God's law so much more significantly because now it wasn't just words that you violated. It was God himself. You've trampled the son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Understand. My mom told me a verse when I was a kid that horrified me for years. She said, son, be sure your sin will find you out. Yeah, yeah, Christine said that to her kids too. So every mom is like, my kids, I'm gonna write that on their bathroom mirror. They're gonna hear that every morning. It's the truth. You don't get away with sin. Oh, maybe, maybe your spouse doesn't find out. Maybe your boss doesn't find out. Maybe your pastor doesn't find out, but not one of us gets away with it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, it says, uh, to continue on in, in Hebrews 10, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to this. Verse 31 of Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We have a minuscule understanding of the ferocity of our God. Let me explain it like this. I was uh, studying this week. Don't ask me why. I was studying this week about Genghis Khan. (laughs) Naturally. So Genghis Khan and his Mongolian army, they took over uh, about 1,200 years ago. They they took over um, most of the Eastern world. And... uh, and during this time, Genghis Khan was responsible for the execution of 40 million people. In fact, history records that in what is now Iran, Genghis Khan and his men executed 1.78 million people in one hour. There were people that were a delegation who had come to try to negotiate peace with Genghis Khan. They came into a village that 
his men had recently ransacked and they, they said, I think the village is in the direction of those mountains. And so they start hiking toward this mountain range that they can see in the distance. And when they get close, they realize it's not a mountain range. It is hundreds of thousands of bodies stacked on top of each other. And so here's my, here's my issue. When we think about Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see Jesus meek and mild, frail and broken on a cross, begging for a scrap of our attention. But when hell looks at him, they see Genghis Khan, like the supreme warlord of heaven. He's the one that demons beg for mercy. Like the demons that afflict and oppress and possess and twist and torment humanity. When Jesus walks into the room, they quake and cower. They fall to their knees and say, oh, son of David, have mercy on us. Like we have significantly underestimated the ferocity of Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced if we really knew who it was we were dealing with, there are two things that would be very different about our lives. Number one, we would never again be intimidated by evil. Never again be intimidated by hell. And number two, we would never again treat his presence or his word casually. I'll I'll tell you a story um, that has been so compelling to me for for years. A friend of, of our ministry, John Bevere, um, tells a story about years ago, he was invited to meet with a, a minister who had led one of the premier uh, ministries in the United States of America, very well-known uh, preacher, pastor, and author. And, uh, and this guy had, he'd reached millions upon millions of people with his, his ministry, but he'd committed fraud and he had been arrested and, and put in jail because of it. During his time in, uh, in prison, he reached out to John Bevere and John went to the prison to meet him. And he goes in and they spend about 20 minutes sitting down and, and this guy's just sharing his story. And, and John says, well, man, you know, what happened? Like, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? And this guy said, I, I didn't. He said, I, I, oh, I never stopped loving him. He said, I stopped fearing him. And I think, I think we have to understand you can love God and not fear him. And your love for God may be the reason that you read the Bible sometimes and you sing worship songs and you come to church. It makes you feel good. I love God. I love him very much. It's like, oh no, but there's conditions to, to loving him. The Bible tells us repeatedly that to love him is to keep his commands. To love him is to keep his commands. We cannot say that we love him if we don't fear him. Because if we don't fear him, the reality is we don't really know him. Because if you really knew him, oh, you would never violate his law. You would never set yourself against him. The church is in such dire shape in our generation because we do not fear God anymore. We don't really believe that Jesus meant it when he said that man will have to give account on that day for every careless word he has spoken. Maybe this is a leap here, but I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't think that it is that not only that, we'll probably have to give account for every careless word we've typed into a YouTube comment section, for every careless word that we've posted on Facebook, for every careless word that we've texted somebody for the gossip, the slander, the criticism and skepticism, for the 
The times that you let your insecurity tear other people down so that you could look better by comparison. We're going to have to stand in front of Jesus and answer, not just for the words that we've spoken, but for the motives with which we've spoken them. Three times in my life, um, the Lord has, four times in my life, the Lord has called me to publicly confront um, leaders that were in sin. Three of those times, within 30 days of the confrontation, that man was in jail. Three times this has happened to me. God has said, I want you to confront that leader. A leader of a ministry, a leader of a business, a guy that was blaspheming God. That's not something that I love to do. It's something actually that I dread to do and I do everything I can to avoid if possible. And, and so, um, and so I, uh, there was a, a time, uh, I'll tell you this story. Um, a guy was leading a, a ministry, a significant ministry in central Alabama. This ministry was reaching thousands of high school students, high school and college age students, like 6,000 every week. And, um, and for about a month, I was praying for him like every day. We, we had started sort of talking about this guy and his ministry. God just kept putting it on my heart, like remember him, think about him. And uh, during this time, somehow just by divine orchestration, I, I ended up running into some people that had been associated with his ministry who, who said things are not good. Here's what you can be praying about specifically. And some of his board members had tried to sound the alarm and he'd kicked them off the board. Uh, there were some issues in his private life, his marriage. There were some things going on um, with uh, substances, substances and substance abuse in his life. And so it was like I knew all of these sort of private things. And I'd been praying specifically, faithfully for this guy. And uh, Candace knew it. And I'll never forget sitting in the airport, getting ready to fly um, back home in the middle of a, a tour my band was on, talking to her on the phone. And I said, hey, I need to go. And she goes, what's going on? And I said, hey, that guy just sat down next to me in the airport. And she probably thought, oh gosh, I know what that means. <laughs> and, um, and I think, this sucks. Lord, send somebody else. <laughs> you know? um, but I, I pulled him aside. You know, I, I pulled him aside and I said, hey, you, know, I, you don't know me, but I've been praying for you every day for months now. And um, the Lord has somehow showed me this and this and this and this. I know these things are going on and I... I want you to know that God cares about you and he cares about this ministry and it's okay to take time away, to get healed, to disconnect, to, um, to really rediscover who you are in Christ. It's okay. It's, it's not just okay. It's necessary. And, uh, and he, he just said, all right, you know, that's fine. And then he started telling me a story um, about something that God had done through his ministry recently. And, uh, and I said, was that recent? And, and he said, yeah, it's just like last week. The problem was that story had happened more than five years prior. And I knew that that story had happened. He talked about it publicly. Um, I knew that that story had happened years prior. And, and, uh, and it, it became evident to me that he was actually on drugs while we were talking. And, uh, and so, so I just think, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I, we get on this plane, we're on the same plane, we get on this flight, and I spend the whole flight just stressing, like, what can I do? What more could I do? And so I, uh, we get off the plane, he has a guy that's like a, his right-hand man that's with him, travels with him everywhere, uh, and I had met him a time or two, and so I pulled him aside, and I said, dude, he's going to run himself into the ground if he keeps um, 
if he keeps carrying this burden without you guys. Like he's gonna need your permission to go and get healthy and whole. And when I tell you this guy uh, did not wanna hear it at all. In fact, he started yelling at me and accusing me of slandering the man of God. And I said, listen, I'm not on Facebook talking about, like I, I, this isn't, he said, you know, people always try to bring themselves up by tearing other people down. And I said, dude, I'm not online talking about this. I'm not running around town telling other people this stuff. I've been praying for him in private. And then I came directly to him and then to you to say, somebody needs to help him. And, uh, and I mean, this guy was screaming at me in the airport, like so much so that if I wasn't in the conversation, I would have thought these two guys are about to fight. And I just kept saying, am I wrong? Like if, if what I'm saying is incorrect, then so be it. And he just, of course, couldn't say that that was the case. And, and he just kept saying, you know, oh, all the slander, you know, the persecution comes from within the church and the slander and everybody's trying to tear down the man of God. Well, that man of God was in jail three weeks later. The ministry doesn't exist anymore. And uh, who knows the kind of collateral damage that came to the thousands of people who um, were going there every week. That was their primary source of spiritual food. And so um, here's the thing about correction. It's that um, correction is, is not the consequence of your action. Correction is God's mercy attempting to save you from the consequence of your action. Can I, I want to make sure that you hear that. Correction is not the consequence of your action. Because what he could have done was yielded to the correction. Now, I'm not saying God sent me because I was God's first choice. In fact, I think I was God's last choice. I think he sent the board members. I think he sent this guy's wife. I think he sent people that were in leadership to him and he didn't listen to any of them. So he sent a random stranger in the airport to pull him aside and say, this, I'm the last stop before God pulls back the, the veil and reveals you for what you are. And so you should understand, correction is not the consequences of your actions. Correction is the mercy of God at work to save you from the consequences of your actions. We have to fear God. He is the God who crippled Egypt. He's the God who caused the earth to open up and swallow the rebel Korah and all his followers. He's the God who crushed the walls of Jericho into dust and who leveled Sodom and Gomorrah with the wave of his hand. He is not to be treated as casual or common. He is not to be treated as casual or common. He is not to be treated as casual or common. He is not to be compromised or negotiated with. When he speaks, we listen. When he leads, we follow. It is only by his mercy that we are not consumed by his omnipresence in any given moment. If we do not tremble at his word, we will fall under his wrath. Understand, all of us, every one of us, by our own actions, by our own rebellion, by our own self-will and self-indulgence have set ourselves as enemies of this God. There is no more dangerous place to be. Thankfully though, we didn't only come here today to consider the severity of God. Romans 11 tells us to consider 
the goodness and the severity of God. And so now that we have some context for who exactly it is we are dealing with, let's talk about his goodness. He is good. He is good. And no matter how good you think he is, he is better than that. And Romans 2.4 tells us actually that it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It's such a paradoxical idea that it's, it's God's goodness, the revelation or the manifestation of his goodness or his kindness, to say it another way, that actually leads or guides or provokes us to repentance. It's like, um, there's no better way for me to recognize how loveless I've been than to stand in the light of the love of God. That to, to recognize that there's a God who cares more about my life than I do. Like the day that I came to salvation, it wasn't, it wasn't because of God's ridicule or, or because he began to heap shame on me. It's because God, the purity of God's presence became inescapable in my life. And, and by comparison, I realized I am holy and completely impure. There is nothing genuine or honest or good in me and everything genuine and honest and good is in him. The two of us are not compatible. I'm in danger. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I want to read 1 John 3. This, uh, 1 John 3, 1 just captivated me this week. It said, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Think for just a minute. Think for just a minute about the God that I just described. The God that crippled Egypt. The God that caused the earth to open up and swallow Korah and his rebellious cohort straight into Sheol alive. Like the God that crushed the walls of Jericho. Walls so wide they could race chariots on top of them. He crushed them into dust. The God that eviscerated Sodom and Gomorrah. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children. What of God? Like, man, I'll never forget uh, years ago, uh, we were at a birthday party down in, in Alabama. And uh, it was a birthday party at a, a park, like a pavilion at a public park. And so, you know, you had all the party people that were invited to this party, but you had some other random people that were just at the park for the day. So my boys are uh, out on the, the playground. And I think Kai, my oldest, was something like five or six years old. And Caleb was like two or three. He was, he was uh, younger, maybe four, uh, three or four. And, um, and so they, they go out and they're playing on the, the, the playground and some kid pushes Caleb down. My sweet, precious, innocent baby Caleb. Some kid pushes him down on the ground. And so Kai comes over and tells me, and he says, Dad, that kid in the gray shirt, he pushed Caleb down. And so I leave the party and I start walking over to find out what's going on. And Kai is bouncing up and down next to me going, use the dad voice, use the dad voice, use the dad voice. Like, cause you know, the dad voice, it just makes time stand still. <laughs> there's something so beautiful. Like a, a, there's such a confidence and security that you can have when you know that your dad is so much scarier than your enemy. Uh, your enemy may be bigger and stronger and scarier than you, but oh, buddy, have you seen my dad? Like my, my boys knew there's no kid on this playground that could stand up to my dad. My dad, he's going to kill this kid. Like, you know, 
And, and I think when we have a sense of the severity of God, it gives us permission to actually understand the kindness of God. Like there's a reason that when, when the boys were in danger, they didn't come looking for Candace. God bless her, she's tiny. It's like that kid on the playground might've been able to whoop her. <laughs> and this is, this is the problem with our limited understanding of the ferocity of, of, of God. It's like when we see God as needy and codependent, when we see God as frail and fragile, maybe we pray the prayer, or we, we answer the altar call, or we sign our name on the dotted line out of pity. Maybe you've been in a service where people tell you, oh, well, he died for you. You know, the least you can do is say this prayer. The least you can do is slip your hand up while nobody's looking. Like, you know, we, we make this, we make the impetus for our step towards salvation pity. Like, like Jesus is pitiful and out of pity, I'm giving him some affection, a little bit of my attention. I'll give him my Sunday mornings because, well, you know, he did die and it's the least I could do. It's like, now I understand that that might provoke people to answer the altar call. That might pull on people's heartstrings and they might pray a sinner's prayer for the same reason that people send 50 cents a day to starving kids in Africa. But when we come face to face with an enemy that's bigger than us, when we come into a crisis, when we realize that we are outnumbered or outgunned, then it's not enough for me to have some pitiful God sitting by his phone waiting for me to call some God that needs me or my attention to validate or affirm himself. Now that's when I need a warrior king. That's when I need a God that's not just kind, but is severe as well. A God that's not just good, but a God that's fierce and ferocious. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, listen to this, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Why are we gonna be like him? for we shall see him as he is. Can I, so I'll, I'll tell you what I have done in, in my Bible. Uh, I've underlined that line and I wrote in the margin, you become what you behold. Why are we going to become like Christ? Because we will behold him as he is. You will always reflect the thing you look at most. You will always reflect the thing you look at. You ever see a couple that they've been married for so long, they start to look alike? It's, that's why I married Candace. I'm hoping I can get better looking as time goes by. You will always become, you'll, you'll embody, you'll, you'll uh, internalize, and you'll reflect back the thing you look at most. This is, this is the uh, uh, top of the list issue in the modern church. People are like, you know, they're anxious, they're unstable, they're full of fear, they're, they're immature, they're selfish and self-centered and, and, you know, and they're just like, I just don't know why God's not working in my life. It's like, well, he's having a hard time getting your attention while you're inundating yourself with the standards of the world. 
Like you're binging yourself constantly on what the world has to offer, which produces anxiety and dysfunction and immaturity and selfishness and self-destruction. And, and then you're wondering why God's holy word isn't transforming you. It's like, well, because you're spending more time looking at the world than you are looking at the Savior. So of course you don't look like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Friends, can I tell you, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to grow in maturity, integrity, excellence, passion, power, and revelation, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Get get in the the words of Scripture and, and look at what they've said about Jesus. Get into the place of prayer. Just sit in, in the place of personal, private devotion and, and say, Jesus, I just want to look at you today. What do your eyes look like? What do your hands feel like? I, I just want to behold you. I want to spend time with you. I, I want to devote myself to worship because I, I want to just come into your presence and then tell you what I see while I'm there. I want to come into your presence and then I want to tell you what I see while I'm there. This is how we position ourselves to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. It's by prioritizing time spent gazing at the person of Christ. We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. In the very next chapter, John continues in 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10. He says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That we might live through him. Part of me feels like we should just sit and think about this passage for a minute. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world. That we, rebels, fornicators, adulterers, thieves, liars, crooked and depraved wretches who had, in, with every opportunity we'd been given, denied the lordship and, and love of God and chosen our own path over his. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, verse 10 says, in this is love, not that we loved God because we didn't, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. That's like um, to to be the the debt-canceling payment for our sins. It's the price paid for the, um, for the, the liberation of a slave. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, we have to understand the deep 
severity, intensity, ferocity of God, if we are ever going to understand just how supremely miraculous it is that he would send his only son into the world, his only begotten son into the world, so that we might live through him. So that, so that he, though we had not loved him, he loved us and he sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. The goodness of God is that he spared us from his severity. We've been exhorted in Romans 11 to consider or to behold the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness of God is that he spared us from his severity. Though we have deserved his severity, we have inherited his goodness. Why? So that all of the cosmos will eternally reflect on his mercy. So that people could never be impressed with us for having attained or accomplished salvation. So that no one could ever congratulate me for having uh, summited the mountain of uh, self-development and achieved the state of righteousness. But so that my life, any righteousness, any dignity, any nobility, any purity or integrity or excellence that I demonstrate, so that all of it would, would have to be cast eternally at the feet of Christ to say that he is the only reason that anything good has ever come from my life. What an indescribable privilege it is to know that our God is not only good, but severe. To know that not only is he, has he saved me from the wrath that I deserved in his infinite mercy, but also that every enemy foolish enough to come against me is going to have to deal with him. Any enemy foolish enough to come against you is going to have to deal with him. And can I tell you, addiction has no chance against him. Depression has no chance against him. Come on. Condemnation and shame and guilt, they have no chance against him. There is no demon in hell that can stand in his presence. Come on. And as, as you continue to fall into his arms, you're going to find that there's no enemy fierce enough to follow you there. Amen. Come on, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your severity. Thank you, God, that you're not just good to us. Thank you that you are very, very bad to everything that's against us. Lord, thank you that you are unstoppable, glorious, holy, magnificent, and fierce. And Lord, teach us again today to marvel at the fullness of your character. Not just the parts that you show us, but teach us, God, to remember that you're not only kindness and love and generosity, but you're also fury and wrath and vengeance. God, there is nothing you cannot do. And in your infinite, glorious power, you chose to redeem us, and, and we still marvel at that reality today. God, let us never graduate from that truth. Thank you for the gospel that saves us. Thank you for the truth that mercy is available to us. Thank you for the blood of your son that made that possible. Lord, we love you. We bless you. We honor you.
today in, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Come on. Y'all, thank you so much for being here today. God bless you. We love you. And I will see you Wednesday night at 630. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you were impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the altar as we work to establish the kingdom of heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.